part of what I wanted to bring into this conversation is first-generation people have both privileges and challenges. And this is something that my sister and I talk about all the time. It was only right to bring my beautiful, brilliant sister, Malika Hodge, um, into today's episode. Being first generation, you're not tainted in in the in the harms of this country. Like you haven't been wrapped all the way in it. So when you come here and what your parents tell you about that experience, like you're just starting off the generational cycle here. And I don't think people fully fully understand how harmful this place is the longer you stay here over time. So there was like a protective shield because of being like you can't waste opportunity. Look what happened, like look at these black Americans that are standing outside the building, you know, growing up the projects, like look at these people that don't go to school and are drinking and all of these things. And sometimes you're judging the individual. On the season of The Labyrinth of the First Gen, we will explore a conversation about what we carry with us and what we redefine. We are pioneers just by simply existing. My name is Malika. I'm based in the Bronx, New York. I consider myself like a humanization strategist. So although I fall into this DEIA umbrella, which I still have a lot of feelings about why it doesn't feel completely right to categorize my work that I do as that, I guess that's how most people would understand it. Very, very passionate about creating safe spaces everywhere for folks especially in work environments for folks that are historically underrepresented and continuously oppressed. I love health equity work, really love thinking about healthier environments, how to make sure people are given good options in life. I think that's really important. I love writing, love speaking, love learning. You describe yourself as a humanization strategist. Can you talk about the work that you are currently doing and what exactly does that mean? Yeah, of course. Like, to be honest, you know, I really think I'm happy there's a language for some of that work now, but I think that it's kind of been co-opted and corporatized. Everybody now says they have a diversity, equity, inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice idea. They're calling it all these acronyms. In a sense, I'm happy that there's more opportunities for people to get paid for this work that sometimes we feel we have to do because if we don't come in saying that this is restrictive and here's how and why, nothing really shifts and changes at all in these work environments. So I definitely think our discomfort causes us to often do free labor to make the environment a little bit more palatable for the people that are there and the people that are going to come after. But, you know, there's so much labor that we've done that we have not been paid for in creating that in those spaces. There's also deep responsibility and in, in being tokenized and being tasked to solve a problem that you don't cause. So I think there, there's just this web, this like matrix of things that are just like, that is so complex as often really looking about like, what is it about the conditions of this country? The conditions really of colonization that lead to, you know, the institutions that we continue to build where we start to see those same kind of like imperfections that cause real harm. 
And so this definitely, you know, it influences the work that I want to do because I, I want it to be better for the people that come after me. Some people made it their responsibility to make sure that I'm able to enjoy what I have now. We have to continue to take it a step further. Malika talked about how doing this work, when we're thinking about advancing um, places in the workplace and making a safe environment, it is not separate from the social, economic, and political climate of the United States and how that directly um, really influences work environments and workplaces. Although the pendulum, they find ways to swing it back, right? You look at, like, Republican lawmakers now banning, (laughs) banning, you know, like, Democratic legislators and stuff. Like, uh, you know, like the uh, the undoing of voting rights and all of these things that are, that's happening to make sure that the system stays as it's supposed to be. But I think Black resistance is so powerful. And the more that I'm able to travel and see it and understand Black American resistance stories inspire others to take it a step further, too. I think I really learned that in Paris, right? Like, really seeing how these folks from all over Europe are like, yeah, like, we're looking at what Black Americans are doing as a way to kind of inspire our movements here because they're further behind, in some senses, in those places. So, yeah, I think the work's incredibly important, I think. I think it's almost impossible for, as a conscious person to not be a part of that to, of that work in some capacity to really figure out how to um, open more doors for yourself and others. I love that you mentioned really the the global perspective and, and importance of resistance from the Black community and in the United States, particularly, and how that influences places elsewhere. And something that, you know, you mentioned around this, like, power of Black resistance, right? So I also want to ask a follow-up question. How do you, how do you describe your race and or ethnicity? We kind of got a sense of that. I'm Garifuna. I'm also West Indian. Um, Places I'm from being a Garifuna because Garifuna people is not confined to just one place, but primarily Belize. We have some heritage also in probably in Guatemala and in Honduras as well. That's still meant to be kind of like uncovered and excavated as well. U.S. Virgin Islands. And, you know, we found that recently that our dad's father might have been from Maybe he wasn't from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Maybe he was from another island like Antigua or something like that. So that was also interesting to note. I consider myself to be proudly Black, although my heritage is not really rooted in the African-American story, but more in the, the larger kind of Caribbean and Latin American context. When you hear the words first generation, what comes up for you? I think first generation, I feel like the first ones to kind of break maybe barriers in the U.S. on U.S. soil. But I also think you can be you you can be the first one in your generation when you break any type of barrier that hasn't been seen before. I think that's also another way to look at it, which I like the way you had described it as well in, in your in your quest to really figure this out. 
for me, it's immense kind of like gratitude because it's such a luck factor, right? Sometimes you sit with like, what, like, what if my parents didn't find their way to, to, to New York City? And there's so many people, I, I still know people and have people that I hold dear to my heart that are trying to enter this country for opportunities and being able to be born here gives you a global entryway into the, the whole world in a sense, right? So I think about that, but I also think about the immense responsibility um, and the weight of that too. Malika also emphasized the importance of recognizing her own identity as someone who has parents with immigrant roots and also how it intersects the history and or the sacrifices of African-Americans in the United States. However, because I live in this country, I feel like, and I benefited from the trials and tribulations of folks that are from here, I have deep gratitude for it, but I also understand that my experience is is different. I think this informs my work because I don't think people are one-dimensional. I feel like it is definitely the case when it comes to Black people. People often make the assumption that the Black identity is not dynamic. And I'm I'm speaking about that from the perspective of the United States um, in particular. So when people say, are you, you know, black or, you know, they can see that you are visibly black, they can see that there's often no other question, right? I don't even like the references to like African-Americans being like, quote unquote, regular blacks or all of those things because there's, or because there, there is stories there, right? And there's variations and there's things to excavate there too. And when I was working with students, when I was teaching in a high school years ago, that was something that I would talk to the young people about because they were just like, I'm just black. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> right? Like, where are your people from? What is, what's their story? How did you arrive in New York? Where are some of your connections? Because we forget that there's all of these ethnicities and different things that are here too. So people forget that blackness does not mean that you don't have an ethnicity. And I notice people flattening identities in general, which makes it really hard for us to think about how do we build spaces for both visible and invisible differences that people might have. So I think that it's a really interesting layer because I'll be in a space and depending on where I am, people may not know that I have an immigrant background and they forget to add that layer, right? Or how that layer contributes to this fabric too. So I think that has really... kind of influenced me to really think about my blackness, but also in some of the ways, because we're trained to do this to each other. What are some of the ways that I do that too, right? As we as we look at this and the assumption, right? That there's not black people who speak other languages, who speak Spanish, like the surprise people get when I speak Spanish, then I was like, why are you surprised? And, I, and I'm taught some of that stuff too, because sometimes because of the lack of representation, especially with like within like the Latina that context, we forget how many black people are there. We forget the full dynamics of, of the transatlantic slave trade. And even, and not just confined to that because there were black people that were here that were not part of the slave trade too, right? But blackness is not just an American, it's an American thing, right? Like there's black people all over the world, even in Asia. Something that 
is coming up in this conversation is the differences between race and ethnicity as well as the intersections between race and ethnicity. And I was wondering if you can talk a bit more about how you define the differences and the nuances uh, of race and ethnicity. I think that's an interesting question within the U.S. context because sometimes the way we categorize things also misses a lot of things. I'm very proud to consider myself Black. I'm a Black, visibly Black woman. And I'm also ethnically, right, Garifuna. I'm ethnically Central American, right, West Indian. So there's all of those enclaves too. So I think racially we're looking at the categories that the U.S. confines us to Black, White, you know, Asian, Latino or Latina and X, which is very interesting because it, that really crosses a border into ethnicity. So ethnicity, I think, helps to, to add that other dynamic and layer as to where are you kind of even culturally from, right? Maybe sometimes even like what languages and cultural practices you practice at home, what languages do you speak? I see ethnicity as a deepened lens of the cultural enclaves that we may be a part of. And I see racial categorization because the brain likes segmentation. So it helps to folks to just kind of pinpoint and put folks into some categories. And also sometimes a lot of that goes based on phenotype, right? And then the struggles of what if you don't even look like the phenotype that you that you check off the box, right? And sometimes you can be multiple things. People are, are you know, biracial Blacks and, and all of these things. And so it can be very limiting, but I think race is the bigger bucket and ethnicity is like the smaller kind of more nuanced variances that happen or that explain some other components of our identities. Malika talked about sometimes again, because people are not understanding the dynamics of the differences between race and ethnicity, and even the intersections of race and ethnicity, there are some exclusions to understanding that additional layers as well. There's times where I've been in all black groups where I'm like, like, because this is not, we're not talking about blackness in a dynamic way, I'm not feeling seen and heard. And there's a lot of assumptions being made about what Black is, and it's not a very pan-African sort of view, right? Like, that Blackness is global. And that's something that, like, a project that I would like to work on, right? Like, Blackness is a global phenomenon. It's not just confined to the way we put it into a box in the U.S. Because even the way we confine it in the U.S. is very limiting, too, right? Like, I think about stories about, like, the Gullah people, for example. Like, all of these stories... um, I was reading Rust is Resistance and she was talking about not just in Jamaica was there a maroon story, right? Black people who are fighting against, but there's maroon stories all over the world about black people who said no, right? So that was like a really interesting concept too, because usually I think maroon and I think Jamaica, right? But like maroons being a a cultural phenomenon and, and many black people, Harriet Tubman, right? And a black American maroon, you could say, or an African American maroon. 
we spoke about how around how there are assumptions around blackness is but also those assumptions come from within our communities as well i think about every time there's some sort of like affinity group or black people coming together there there's not the assumption that there's there's global stories to be uncovered in the space and so i want to be able to honor and celebrate soul food and all of the things people typically affiliate blackness with but that's not all of it right like so we sometimes we make that assumption that everybody's eating soul food at home right for example i was a part of a, an affinity group where they did like a black bingo and a lot of the stories were very confined to like their those kind of experiences of being like descendants of like american blackness um so that was it, it was like interesting i was like huh this is really interesting and when we don't have a more i think involved or integrated conversation about what this could look like i think we lose the ability to feel connect truly connected to each other you know like because as i uncover the stories and i continue to read because there's so much to read about even understanding black people who made it possible for me to be here on this soil like i just you know there's so many things that we of course we weren't taught that shit in school and there's also you know that's why they're banning books and all that other stuff cuz they don't want us to learn those things but then you start to see the connections right you start to understand the full story and the full picture about like the lack of representation of black people all over the world and i think when we're not really um making a constructive assumption that like there's there's layers to the blackness in all spaces we 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 leave people to the side and so that's really hard to we lose those stories like surely chism like from barbados right like arguably hip hop is is a lot of jamaican american folks who really opened the door for that music to happen biggie smalls his mother i believe is jamaican right and so you start to it's it's more than just one thing and this has been going on for a very long time and really looking and sometimes that's what i have to say as people are really thinking about the conversations towards reparations like who's going to get that right y'all did, you y'all weren't here building the stuff and i'm like you don't know that like you don't know that you don't know when someone's immigrant story began right so we need to be there has to be a wisdom there the 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 Schomburg in Harlem he was a Puerto Rican right he's he's afro latinx and so there's all of these things that like is there dynamics to these things and so when we start to get too siloed and too singular about things i think we really lose people's contributions we're going to take a quick pause and continue the conversation when we return the labyrinth of the first gen would like to announce a call to action we hope that you are currently enjoying the show and we want to hear feedback from you. So if you are listening on this show on any of iTunes platforms, Spotify, as well as Google Podcasts, please rate the show. Let us know what you think. And as they say, sharing is caring. So share this episode with a friend. And we are back. This is the labyrinth, labyrinth, labyrinth of the first gen. 
I want to hear from you around the perspective of being first gen. And are there um, significant differences when you're thinking about um, people that have been here for generations, right? I think definitely for sure being first generation, you're not tainted in in the in the harms of this country. Like you haven't been wrapped all the way in it. So when you come here and what your parents tell you about that experience, like you're just starting off the generational cycle here. And I don't think people fully, fully understand how harmful this place is the longer you stay here over time. So there was like a protective shield because of being like, you can't waste opportunity. Look what happened. Like, look at these black Americans that are standing outside the building, you know, growing up the projects. Like, look at these people that don't go to school and are drinking and all of these things. And sometimes you're judging the individual. But also as a public health person, also knowing that, like, it only takes about, I think, two generations, the research shows, for those same kind of, like, institutional and structural ills to start to affect our communities, too. Do I feel like we have a little bit of a protective shield in some sense? Yes, because it's it's both a blessing and a curse that you're taught to be better than the Black Americans on U.S. soil and is used as a motivation stimuli. Like, don't mess this up because look what could happen. Look at them. They don't buy no homes. They don't. And all of these stories are not really rooted fully in fact, right? Because I'm like, well, for even Black people to be here, Black immigrants, like it was because of the work of African-Americans, right? To open up the door for that to even happen, for us to benefit from the policies. All immigrants actually have benefited from the Civil Rights Act. There was even a story about the way it opened it up for Indian Americans, right? There was an article about that. And so there was just, again, not enough recognition, but also because we're not really looking at like the larger powers that be that really we need to be questioning them, we start to peel apart one another. So within the Black community, I hear a lot of xenophobic comments. Xenophobic, xenophobia is big, right? Like people like, look at these immigrants and la-da-da-da. And I have to be like, hey, like, (laughs) you know, I'm from an immigrant family or really peeling back, where does that come from? When you hear people, you know, kind of ready to disparage. And then I hear the other side of immigrant groups too, also disparaging. So nobody is completely innocent in that. And then we're not really talking about why we're even in this conundrum in the first place with limited opportunities. And so I definitely see the way that my immigrant status, people are often like, oh, I know you weren't like African-American. You, There's something different about you. And I'm like, what? That's a comp, you know, like, oh, you know, oh, I could tell. Yeah, I could tell you're not from here, you know, like. Sometimes even I get from other Black people, they're like, oh, from your features, I knew you weren't like Black, African-American. I always find that fascinating because sometimes I can tell too from features when I see somebody, I'm like, oh, you're like from blah, 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 blah. right? So that's also really interesting to know. But yeah, people, this definitely has been a privilege in some senses because people assume a little bit more highly of you than if you said you were black American, especially I feel in the Northeast. I do think there's different dynamics going on down South. Like there's a beauty in going down there and seeing so many, like, you know, the HBCUs are down there. There's a lot of black professionals, people who've been 
on the higher echelons of black society for a long time, you know? So I think there is a different dynamic with the Northeastern stuff too. How, how do these dynamics, um, when we're talking about acknowledging that, you know, there are even, you know, separations between black immigrants and, um, black times African-American, how do these dynamics show up in the spaces that you have been in? Um, whether that be in school, work, um, or outside of that. I definitely think like being in some of the spaces, predominantly white institutions and things that I've been in, I noticed that most of the black people I see or a good number of them are not African-American. I noticed this even in grad school when I was doing, when I was on the diversity staring community there and we were really sitting with the powers that be and being like, why is it that we don't have people, you know, from Roxbury and Dorchester and these black areas? Hell, we didn't even have people from Chinatown applying, right? Because the, the black people that were at my, my public health program and in the medical schools, they were not African-American. A lot of them were Caribbean. A lot of them were Nigerian, Ghanians, right? And so like you start to see it. I, I see it when I work with organizations across the board, you'll see black people, you know, from their name that they're not black people from U.S. soil. advice based on your experience and even thinking about the work that you do today that you would give any first gen person whether they are from an immigrant background or they're folks around the world that are trying to pave a path for themselves and future. I think that, you know, that you're not, that we're not crazy. Like there's a weight that we carry. And sometimes I'm even reading back some of my old journal entries and I'm like, wow, I've been having kind of like a lot of the negative self-talk for a very long time because it feels like there's this immense responsibility. It feels like the world can feel really unkind, like you're efforting and you're still not completely, you know, maybe where you want to be right? Or there's so much resistance all the time and you're constantly going uphill. So I think recognizing that the world is a difficult place. And I think it's important to remind ourselves about like the mountains that we've already climbed. That's what I'm reminding myself now. I'm like, wow, like you, you know, you're a black woman from, from one of the largest housing projects and you were able to purchase an apartment. That wasn't an easy feat. Being Black, they make it very difficult for people to own property. And our people have owned property in this country. And this is why they continuously fight to take it away from us because it's so important. Ownership is so important. And so, you know, really thinking about the hills you have to climb because sometimes you're already looking at the next hill. And I think that really can contribute to like spiritual and mental dysmorphia, not, not really being able to like see the fruits of our labor. So I think it's important to know that, yeah, you're not crazy for feeling that way, but also how do we and how do I like make more room for for kind of like rest and, and celebration? I think that's very important. I think another piece of wisdom is, you know, no one talks to us about workplaces until we're in them and you're going through the dynamics. I even think about what our father went through. You know, sometimes I look at his old resumes and him coming home and there's so many 
stories that that our loved ones go through as they go in to make money to to survive and i think about those stories too and it pains my heart right and like so you you like i want six figures and i want this things that like our parents were not even able to accomplish but you think about the cost of that too on your psyche and on your spirit like it's not it's not easy being in these in these spaces at all so it's like sometimes i'm, I'm really thinking about like how do we pave new ways to exist new like ways of existing or tap back into some of the ways that were already established for us by some of the trailblazers that made it possible to be here you know like there have been plenty of people and movements that said you know this system doesn't work and we want to do new systems and have new ways and i want to uncover a little bit more of those stories because the wisdom is already in the room about some of the things that some of the trajectories that we can be on some of the new ways to look at things to create other means for ourselves even though so many black entrepreneurship stories because people had to like even like they were like you know when flavor was enemy like they had to make way selling watermelon selling different things doing what they can starting i was i was listening to a podcast about a black family that started a catering business because black food has always been the heartbeat there's so much like so many people i admire had to say i have to leave these certain environments because i had to save myself or i'm going to end up dead if I don't find another way, if I don't find another environment. So this has been an ongoing thing. And I think a lot of black people have been questioning this and we need to continue to question it and continue to tap back into that wisdom of people that are still here and people who still have left beautiful, beautiful work to show us that that was what they were trying to uncover in this process of like, wow, in this really harmful society, like what are, where are some of the beams of light, you know? So what are, where are our beans of light? I have to ask myself that daily. This episode was produced by me, Wayu Shamika. I want to say sereme to my beautiful sister, Malika Hodge, for joining us for this episode and also bring awareness to the work that she's doing now as a humanization strategist. She just launched her own organization and you can find more information about her, the work that she currently does to better organizations and environments at her Instagram account, human-centered leadership with a C at the end, right? And you can also find her website We will be back next week for another episode, but until then, be in peace, folks, and see you later.